to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios, and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, On the first Sunday of Lent, we were driven out into the desert to remain there for 40 days with Christ. As discussed then, the season of Lent is intended to serve as a time of participatory imitation in the life of Christ. For as Christians, we make this sojourn neither by our own willpower nor for ourselves. Rather, we do so for the love of God and empowered by the grace of God through the interior action of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who drives us out into the desert united to Christ so that our time there might serve to increase our conformity to Him and thereby deepen our participation in the life of the triune God. We strive after these aims by the traditional exercises of Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Moreover, last weekend we discussed how these Lenten observances can be further targeted by identifying a particular weakness we might have when it comes to living the life of Christ and then selecting a virtue, a spiritual strength, to intentionally cultivate over the next 40 days so as to begin overcoming the identified weakness. It is important that, as Christians, we never relegate virtue to the realm of the merely ethical or moral. Rather, from a Christian perspective, virtue speaks to our conformity to and participation in the life of Christ. We will have occasion to speak on the topic of virtue further next weekend. Our discussion for this second Sunday of Lent revolves around our first reading for today, taken from chapter 22, verses 1 to 18 of the book of Genesis. And there, we are confronted by one of the most difficult passages of Scripture, the Akedah, the sacrifice of Isaac. Because of the difficulty of this passage, our tendency might be to shy away from the problematic elements, or whitewash it somehow, so that what we read is somehow less shocking and offensive. Instead, we must allow ourselves to enter more deeply into the passage by reading it more carefully. Accordingly, the first item of importance is to note that the heading for this section of Genesis is entitled, The Testing of Abraham, because in verse 1 we are told, Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. Recall that last Sunday, we read Mark's account of Jesus' 40-day experience in the desert as a test, a time of training in light of Israel's 40-year sojourn through the desert. In the cases of Israel and Abraham, the very same Hebrew word is used to describe these experiences, Nasaw. Accordingly, whereas some might be inclined to read today's first reading in a negative light, as though God were playing a game with Abraham, jerking him around as it were, what we witness in the Akedah is a training session. Notice, please, that Abraham is only able to experience God's training because he is docile and attentive to God's presence in his life. Abraham's docility is exemplified in the same opening verse. God calls to Abraham, Abraham, and immediately Abraham responds, Here I am. 
Abraham's docility is reminiscent of Jesus' cooperation with the Holy Spirit in being driven out to the desert, as discussed last weekend. In both cases, we learn that God can only train us if we are being attentive to his presence in our lives and his will for us at every moment. While understanding this episode as a training session in Abraham's life gives important clarity, it does not for that make it less shocking and even appalling. For next, God says to Abraham, Take your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. If these words do not shock us when we hear them, it is either because we aren't listening or because we consider them mere fable. If we are paying attention, we are shocked because what we face immediately presents us with a psychological and moral dilemma. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard simplifies the dilemma for us in his work, Fear and Trembling. Kierkegaard writes, The ethical expression for what Abraham did is that he meant to murder Isaac. The religious expression is that he meant to sacrifice Isaac. But precisely in this contradiction is the anxiety that can make a person sleepless. And yet without this anxiety, Abraham is not who he is. If we are thinking with a merely ethical paradigm, God is telling Abraham to murder his son. But the merely ethical does not understand what is going on. Instead, the scene can only be understood theologically or religiously. God says to Abraham, Offer Isaac up as a burnt offering. The word offer signifies, as Kierkegaard observes, that God is demanding Isaac as a sacrifice. But Abraham is merely human. While making a distinction between intellectual categories improves our understanding, how much consolation would they bring to us if God called us to do what he calls Abraham to do here? Would it be as easy as saying to ourselves, It's okay. What I am doing is sacrificing my son to God, and therefore, I am not murdering him. The power of Kierkegaard's reflection on this episode in Fear and Trembling is that he does not allow us, his readers, to easily accept what God is asking Abraham to do, nor to dismiss Abraham's response as a foregone conclusion. Rather, Kierkegaard's attention to this passage of scripture brings out the psychological drama revealed to us. Thus, Kierkegaard notes Abraham's response. In verse 3, we are told, Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and after cutting wood for the burnt offering, set out for the place of which God had told him. Kierkegaard attends to what is not revealed to us in order to highlight Abraham's experience. What of the time between God's call to sacrifice Isaac and the next morning? Abraham tells no one, not even his wife Sarah, what he is about to do. Kierkegaard puts it this way, Abraham remains silent but he cannot speak. Therein lies the distress and anxiety. Even though I go on talking night and day without interruption, if I cannot make myself understood when I speak, then I am not speaking. This is the case with Abraham. Abraham tells no one because no one else could possibly understand his acceptance of what God had asked him to do. They would much sooner think he had gone mad. So, how does Abraham move forward with this? How does he do what seems, to borrow Kierkegaard's language, absurd? Abraham moves forward with what by any normal rational standards of logic would be absurd because of faith. This is not to say that Abraham's faith was irrational or subrational, far from it. Instead, Abraham's faith 
as all authentic faith, was supra-rational, beyond reason but not contradicting reason. The book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was ready to offer his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. He reasoned that God was able to raise even from the dead, and he received Isaac back as a symbol. The commentary of this inspired sacred author on the scene from Abraham's life brings us to the very heart of the matter. Notice first that the sacred author describes Abraham's experience as a test. He uses the same word Mark used last weekend to describe Jesus' time in the desert, perazzo. Testing, as has been said repeatedly, can be understood as a type of training. Hebrews tells us that Abraham undergoes this training by faith. The exploration of Abraham's faith forms the center of our discussion today and ultimately leads us to the Mount of the Transfiguration. To begin, think of a situation in which you have been trained by someone. This could be intellectual training in the form of learning, such as at school, a job training by a fellow employee, or athletic training. What is required in the first instance by the trainee in each case? Trust. The trainee must trust that the trainer is instructing them correctly, not misleading them, but training them to do whatever they are being trained to do well. While we normally think of faith as a matter of intellectual assent, in the first instance, faith is a relational matter. Faith flows from and is reflective of authentic relationship. Faith is trust. This is precisely what the Greek word pistis translated as faith means, trust. Faith is thus trust that what the other tells one is true, that it can be trusted. And what had God said to Abraham? Through Isaac, descendants shall bear your name. This is part of what makes Abraham's faith so astonishing. Isaac was Abraham's only son with his wife Sarah. And it was through Isaac that the covenant between God and Abraham's family was to live on, as God tells Abraham in chapter 17, verse 19 of Genesis. To us, and to be sure at some point for Abraham, God's demand of Isaac as sacrifice would seem to call this covenantal promise God had made into question. For how could Isaac be the heir of the covenant if Abraham was to sacrifice him? Still, God had promised precisely this, and never had God told Abraham, you know what, change of plans. And because God had never said anything to the contrary, Abraham continues to have faith, to trust in God's promise to him, and allows his faith to inform his reason. Better, he is allowing faith to perfect his reason. You see, faith is one of three theological virtues, together with hope and love. The theological virtues are so called because they have God as their object. Specifically, faith is the theological virtue that perfects the intellect by empowering it to reason about and understand all things in light of God. Thus, in question 4 of the Segunda Pars of his Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas writes that it belongs to the very essence of faith that the intellect should ever tend to the true, since nothing false can be the object of faith. It is with a mind, an intellect, formed by the virtue of faith, that Abraham is able to reason that God was able to raise even from the dead, as Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 tells us. What Abraham is doing here is theology, 
Most basically, theology can be defined as faith-seeking understanding, as St. Anselm of Canterbury defines it in the first chapter of his Proslogion. Abraham trusts God's promise, has faith in God's promise, and thus reasons that God can do all things to keep his promise to him. Thus, Abraham is able to do exactly what God asks him to do. Abraham's concrete action in obedience to God exemplifies how faith is not a matter of simple intellectual assent, but forms the core of one's whole life such that one reasons in light of faith, thinks theologically, and then acts accordingly. This is precisely how St. Paul describes faith in his letter to the Galatians. There in chapter 5, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Along the same lines, in fear and trembling, Kierkegaard insists that the Akedah shows us that faith in God does not entail a flight from the world. To the contrary, faith must be lived, and if not lived, it is not authentic faith. Thus, Kierkegaard writes that the stance of Abraham, who he calls the knight of faith, is vigorous, belongs entirely to finitude. As a theological virtue, faith provides the strength to live here and now in communion with God, regardless of circumstance. Accordingly, Kierkegaard goes on to describe Abraham's faith as expressing a consonance or harmony with the will of God. Why is Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac? Kierkegaard asks. For God's sake, and the two are wholly identical, for his own sake. He does it for God's sake because God demands this proof of his faith. He does it for his own sake so that he can prove it. What Kierkegaard writes here is very similar to a quote St. Alphonsus Liguori attributes to Cicero in The Passion and the Death of Jesus Christ. Two things, says Cicero, make us know a lover, that he does good to his beloved and that he suffers torments for him, and this last is the greatest sign of true love. Abraham's faith is an expression of his lived unity with God, his love for God. And it is this faith working, acting through love, that enables Abraham to say yes, even when God asks the unimaginable. God asks for the life of his son. Abraham's yes to the sacrifice of Isaac makes him our father in faith, as St. Paul teaches in chapter 3 of his letter to the Galatians. Accordingly, Abraham's active faith enables us to see the very core of faith as a trust. Faith is trust precisely insofar as it is an entrusting of oneself to God, a giving oneself to God. Said differently, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, the son through whom God's covenant with him was to be fulfilled, demonstrates Abraham's willingness to sacrifice everything God had given him for nothing else except his love for God. The thrust of faith is sacrificial, and thus to the extent that the life of the human creature has faith at its core, to that extent will that life be sacrificial. I say this understanding that sacrifice has something of a negative connotation and has even become something of a dirty word for our postmodern mentalities, shaped as it is by a secularist society. We don't want to sacrifice, for sacrifice is hard, uncomfortable, painful, and worse, would entail we give up something we desire or change our plans, and we can't have that. Well, fellow sinners, such can never be the mentality of the Christian. 
Instead, Christianity proclaims that the human creature has been created precisely to be a sacrifice to God. The meaning of the word sacrifice reveals this. The word sacrifice comes from the Latin sacrificium, meaning to make sacred, to make holy. It also has a secondary meaning of something being given to a deity. The Christian faith tells us that the two meanings coincide in the life of the human creature, that the human creature flourishes, is made holy, precisely when it becomes a complete gift to God, a complete sacrifice to God. Thus, St. Paul urges us in the first verse of chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans, By the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern the will of God in order that you may live accordingly. The Greek word Paul uses here, translated as transformed, is metamorphou. The exact same word used by Mark in our gospel reading for today to describe what Peter, James, and John witness, the transfiguration of our Lord. What St. Paul teaches us is that when we allow faith to renew our minds such that we understand and live our lives in accordance with it, we are transfigured. Why is this? Because what we see on the mountain of the transfiguration is not the preview of a transformation that Jesus will undergo. It is a glimpse into the reality of who he is. In the incarnation, the Son of God assumes a human nature and therefore perfects it by uniting it to his divine person. And, by uniting a human nature to his divine person, Christ draws his human nature into the eternal exchange of love that is the Trinity. Each divine person gifting himself completely to the other two divine persons. Being so drawn into this exchange, Christ's human nature is transfigured. It is divinized and therefore radiates with the beauty of divine life. Therefore, what we see in the transfiguration of our Lord is also a glimpse into what God ultimately intends for each human creature. However, by placing this episode from our Lord's life near the beginning of Lent, the Church is reminding us that our transfiguration will only come by participatory imitation of Christ's Paschal Mystery. Thus, our transfiguration will only come by way of Calvary. My friends, this weekend we are reminded of the centrality of faith to the Christian life. From the example of Abraham, we learn that the core of faith is sacrificial. Moreover, by placing the horrifying scene of the Akedah alongside the magnificent scene of our Lord's transfiguration, we learn that our transfiguration begins with the sacrifice of faith, by entrusting ourselves to God. We did just this on the very first Sunday of Lent, by allowing ourselves to be drawn out into the desert for this 40-day journey. We took another step by beginning our process of training with an examination of conscience to see what vices, what weaknesses are allowing sin to linger in our lives and keeping us from growing in communion with God. We took yet another step in selecting a virtue to overcome that weakness, that vice, so that we could have the strength to hand over whatever part of our lives was being kept from God to Him more completely. Each time we entrust ourselves to God in this way, 
we allow him to transfigure us more completely into the creature he has created us to be. A creature created to share in nothing less than the life, beauty, and love that is God. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.